Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to remind everybody to not get sucked into the magical thinking. There's a whole bunch of folks in this country, whether or not they live in Washington, D.C. or New York, work in the media, they're big donors. They want you to think everything is normal. It's not. Times have changed and we have to change with them. This is not a fight, guys, between Republicans and Democrats. This is a fight between those that believe in democracy and those that would tear it down. I need everybody to go to lincolnproject.us and sign up today to join this movement. If we do it together, we have the opportunity to decide what tomorrow looks like, but we can't get to tomorrow unless we win today. Thanks again, everybody. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by investigative journalist and New York Times bestselling author, Vicki Ward. Over the course of her career, Vicki's been a senior reporter at CNN, editor-at-large of HuffPost, Highline, and Town & Country, as well as a contributor to Vanity Fair and Esquire. She currently publishes a Substack newsletter called Vicki Ward Investigates and has written numerous books, including her latest title, Kushner, Inc., Greed, Power, Corruption the extraordinary story of Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. We want to certainly get back to that. Today, she's coming to us from New York City. Vicki, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Reid. So I want to start a little bit before we get into the issues of the day. You're obviously of English extraction here. You are in New York City. You've been there a while, I think. How did you find yourself at this nexus of power and money? What was the, what was the sort of guiding light to get you to such an interesting place in the world? You know, I obviously I did grow up in England. I've lived here for 25 years. I am a proud American citizen, as are my children who were born here. You know, after I moved to America at a very young age, I was made the number three editor at the New York Post. And I then was hired by Tina Brown to be her number two at Talk. And from there, I went to Vanity Fair, where I spent many years before writing my first book about Lehman Brothers. And I think that in all of those venues, the most popular topics were really about people. And there's nothing more interesting, really, than watching very successful people, particularly in America, people who've lived the American dream, achieved everything that we certainly at least used to want to be, and then somehow screw it all up. And I, I remember when I was at Vanity Fair, there was a sort of saying that, you know, we never really write straightforward profiles. We always write stories with friction. And that's what really interests people, that we all do have competing interests in our lives. And so I think, you know, I've always been fascinated as to what it is that brings people who've really fought against all odds to get where they are, that they then come hurtling down. And quite often, it's the same thing that made them very successful is exactly the same thing that is their Achilles heel. I think it's interesting 
you've spent time in and around these circles. I have, but more so in the context of donors, right? Folks who make contributions to political efforts. And the thing I've found is that some of them, and I think it usually starts as soon as your bank account hits 10 figures, you're now in rarefied air, but it's the closest thing humanity has, this rarefied air, and I think it is, to being able to create the universe you want that almost no one else can affect if you don't want them to. The problem is, and I think that friction is the right word, is that you have created, and maybe universe isn't the right word, you have created figuratively and sometimes literally, Vicky, a bubble around yourself. The problem is, is that bubble still occupies space in the actual real world that the rest of us occupy. And there are times when that bubble comes into contact with another bubble or perhaps someone with a big safety pin, right, that wants to pop it. Or you think that your bubble's impenetrable, as we talked about right there at the top. And, you know, you sort of take everything for granted. You know, the bubble world, the sort of bubble billionaire world is a very, very good way of putting it because I think what in the end makes a lot of these people vulnerable is the fact that they don't have friction in their lives. Once you begin to never fly commercial, you know, once you begin to build a time zone of your own, you insulate yourself from really having to deal with other people, with other points of view, with anything that could give you some sort of reality check. And that's how incredible lapses of judgment occur when you've got basically nobody to check you but you. And you are increasingly in a reality distortion field. You know, I once thought it'd be quite interesting to try to describe what it was like to be on sort of billionaire time, because it's literally like, if you're very, very wealthy, you can buy time. But what that means is that you don't get to make the choices that most people make. And for most people, making choices is what is incredibly important and sort of defining for want of a better word. You know, we are who we are because we have to choose what we're going to spend our money on. We have to choose who to vote for. We have to really think hard about what our priorities are. If you don't have to think hard about any of that, you know, I think we've seen there are some very negative repercussions. You know, I want to weave this back towards the country that America is today and what it's going to be in coming days and years. And I think the billionaire time zone, is brilliant and maybe the title of your next book because it's just so perfect, right? And I mean, I got a little taste of this, you know, again, I've had glimpses of this. When I worked at the White House, you know, it's not billionaires, but it's Air Force One, right? Air Force One, the President of the United States gets on the plane, they button up the door and it takes off wherever it is, <laughs> right? Like it waits for nobody. But is there also when they believe that the bubble is threatened, when they have to do something on someone else's time, when they look to the future, and it's not just putting their name on the side of a building, but there's something that they believe they should be able to do because of the station that they've achieved, that now it's like the immune response is overwhelming. Is that something you've seen? Well, you know, I wrote a whole book about the world of real estate in New York. And so your example of when naming a building after you isn't enough is actually interesting because just to take that world, the world of very, very wealthy New York real estate developers is interesting because most of the people who I've written about 
they have something that was once described to me as something called profil neurosa, which is German for means fear of invisibility. And that means two things. One is most developers are very jealous of architects because of course they need the architects to design their buildings. And of course, and the irony is that the architects are the names that are going to be remembered. No one's going to remember in a hundred years time who the developer was. And yet the architects are obviously, even the very famous architects are much less wealthy than the people paying their bills. And I think that's why you get among the real estate developer class who, you know, after all, they run their own businesses. They don't have some superimposed culture like you would at an investment bank. It's a pretty scuzzy, ruthless business, very few rules. They don't write anything down. And It's like the mafia. Right. And so what they do to make themselves feel better, and as a lot of them are very, very big art collectors, and it's a sort of very obvious attempt to compensate for a profession that is obviously extremely lucrative, but that is a bit scuzzy. They're not the architects who are going to get all the glory for the aesthetic values of the building. So they need to compete by saying to the world, well, look, I've got such great taste. Look at the art that I can buy. But the reality is that all the people around that little ecosystem, whether it's the people selling them the art or the architects, absolutely everybody understands the underlying reality here. That's interesting, though, because they have a fear of invisibility. But who are they fearful of being invisible from? Because they don't really care about being invisible to you and me, right? Is it their peers? Is it a certain class? Is it the people that go to the opening of the, the ballet or the opera? Who, who are they looking to show their tail feathers for? I think it's even bigger than that. I think to a certain degree, it's fear of being forgotten in time. I mean, we are all mortal. And, you know, these are very, very competitive people. I mean, if you think about it, they spend their life trying to build, particularly in New York, each building must go higher than the last. I mean, there's something very basic <laughs> sort of right. about that. You Mine's know? bigger I mean, than yours. Exactly. It all comes back to that, Vicky. Right, exactly that. And I think that unlike sort of the masters of the universe in the tech space, whose names we all know, unlike the CEOs in finance, whose names we all know, a real estate developer is just a real estate developer until they go and maybe either buy a sports team or they amass an incredible art collection, or as we know, in one case, they become president. But that is very rare. I mean, this is an industry where in order to win on negotiations, and you have to remember, particularly in Manhattan, it's a very finite amount of space. They're all in very hot competition with each other. And, you know, one man's victory is another man's loss. Unfortunately, I say man, because it's still a very predominantly male industry. You know, I've reported on this. They'll do anything to trip each other up. Friends will betray friends. People will FedEx over boxes of material to competitors' offices in the hope that if somebody was to actually open the office, they would somehow be legally, it would mean that they'd seen material, they'd been conflicted out of a deal. They do all sorts of things that you wouldn't be able to do in most other industries. But there is very little regulation and they don't write anything down. So if they agree verbally to something, 
on one day they can just pretend they have amnesia the next. I mean, the book is called about all this. It's called The Liar's Ball. And that is the name that they themselves give to the annual industry party. Because everybody comes under one roof, they talk absolute BS <laughs> and then they leave. So I think that they are terrified that the more respectable business people are more visible, are more accepted, are more written about. I mean, you don't often read about the machinations of what's really going on inside a real estate deal for a very good reason. They don't want you to know. So that's really what I mean. And then there is this terrible sort of existential fear that time will forget them. So let's bring all of those things together. So you, you mentioned offhandedly the one real estate developer from Queens who wanted to make it in Manhattan, who always wanted to be accepted by Manhattan, but always had a chip on his shoulder, becomes president of the United States. His son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who's also a scion of a developer, who served time in federal prison for doing awful things, not to competitors, but to his own family, <laughs> right? Becomes president of the United States. And yet, you know, the truth is, is that A, he hasn't changed. He is who he is. And B, he's taken all of those lessons that he learned in the rough and tumble world of high stakes Manhattan development, New York development, brought them to Washington, D.C., which you know, has its own rough and tumble, but there was a set of rules to governing, which theoretically should have a pretty solid set of rules and just said, none of it matters, right? Like I know none of it matters. And, you know, you talk about the reality distortion field and I've always found the most fascinating thing about Trump, Vicky, is for a guy of unlimited ambition, but let's say limited intellectual capabilities, that's not instinctual capabilities, which is different. And I think he has exceptional ones there is this is a guy who's been able to bend reality to his will for nearly 80 years. Right, which is not uncommon in that world. And, you know, and by the way, that is why I decided to write Kushner Inc. because, you know, I knew all these characters and I had written the book on real estate and I did realize that that gave me a lens through which to view what was going on in the Trump White House, that I wasn't sure that the reporters in Washington, amazing as they all are, but I wasn't sure that they saw that this really was, all that was happening was they'd moved two family real estate businesses into 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. <laughs> right. And that, that right. was absolutely what was going on. And there's possibly even a distinction to be made there. The Kushners have a real estate business. You know, Trump, if you're in the world of New York real estate, people would say his business is very successful branding business. But I think that one of the things to understand is that suing is like breathing in this world. You know, you have a problem, you sue. You sue your way out of anything. Someone crosses you, you sue them. And there are quite a few stories of sort of what ought to be in any other world disastrous and yet isn't. And they go on to soar again. I think if you've made it in New York real estate, there is a feeling of being completely invincible. Well, and there's also, like in the real estate world, Trump sees everything as a zero-sum game. If I win, I win and you lose. And if you win, no matter how minor the win, I've lost and that's unacceptable. That's an unacceptable outcome, that you get to go to bed feeling good even if you don't think, Vicky, it's at my expense, I think it's at my expense. And I can't allow that. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that what happened in New York, which I think didn't translate well to Washington, D.C., for sort of rather obvious reasons, was that I think that the number of stories I used to hear from competitors of Trump's, you know, about how Trump had either double-crossed them or had completely lied to their faces. Or I remember there's one story, the lawyers who were running the bankruptcy of the business couldn't believe that he was late to his own <laughs> meeting. And of course, when they actually had to sign the papers, he shows up with, you know, 250 copies of his book that he's going to autograph for everyone. And I think there was a feeling that even as they realized that this behavior was on one level disgraceful, there was also amusement and kind of awe about he's so brazen and yet look at him. And I think that obviously the problem is that you go to Washington, D.C., whereas you said, you know, there are rules. Some of them written down 250 years ago. (laughs) There are rules. And I think, you know, you have with Trump, you also have with Jared Kushner for very different reasons. People who just don't think that the rules apply to them. And, you know, with the Kushners, it's a very different story. You know, Jared Kushner's grandparents, there was a feeling in the Kushner family that if they had obeyed the rules back in the day, they would be dead. They had a horrific experience in the Holocaust. But, you know, the difficulty is that as the next generation grows up and, you know, huge priority in in the Kushner family on family, you know, Charles Kushner and his brothers, everybody was supposed to have four children. They came over here. Grandparents didn't speak fluent English. They became part of a group that was called the Builders in New Jersey. So as you say, when Charles Kushner wound up going to jail, it was primarily for an absolutely hideous crime on his own family against his own brother, who he was furious with because his brother had sort of ratted him out. Someone who worked for his brother had ratted out the fact Charles Kushner was in fact taking money that wasn't his from his siblings and moving it around to further the political ambitions and career of Charles Kushner. But he always viewed this as he didn't view it as, well, I've transgressed and broken the law and therefore I should go to jail. He viewed this as a family dispute that Chris Christie, who was then the prosecutor in New Jersey, had absolutely no business (laughs) getting involved with whatsoever. And Jared Kushner gave interviews saying this was a family dispute. Government had no business getting involved. And, you know, my father was making the money, so really it doesn't, you know, if he's making everyone richer in the family, it really doesn't matter how he does it. And that's the mentality that you have then coming in to the White House, running the country. And turns out it's a problem. And this is one of those things, Vicky, as you mentioned, that where this stuff gets all mixed up with one another, right? Chris Christie at that time when Charles Kushner goes to prison is the U.S. attorney for New Jersey, I believe, under George W. Bush you know, then becomes governor of New Jersey's running for president, drops out, endorses Trump, thinks he's going to be running the transition, maybe chief of staff. And Kushner, you know, has the last laugh, knifes him at the end. Then Trump, you know, because Christie doesn't know any better or is just, you know, so drawn to the power of it all, you know, late 2020 goes to debate prep with Trump, gets COVID and almost dies. Like, I mean, it's literally if the Greeks could write 
ludicrous drama like they would have come up with this. But I want to talk about Kushner and Ivanka, too. You know, just as an aside, you know, we put up billboards in Times Square right before the election in 2020 aimed at specifically at Jared and Ivanka, you know, with uh, one panel said, you know, reiterated the Vanity Fair article of Kushner, which is like the red states can live, the blue states can die, whatever that paraphrase was. And then we put Ivanka with her Goya beans picture, you know, and we replaced it with like however many dead Americans there were. And they they sent us a like a cease and desist letter and said they were going to sue us. And we're like, bring it on. Like, we'd love discovery into the White House COVID response. Right. And of course, they didn't do anything. They also came after us pretty significantly as individually and as a group after the election, because, you know, we took from them in their minds, I think, the most valuable thing that A, they were ever going to have their hands on, but B, certainly the most powerful position humanity has yet created. And so here's Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. Now they're running the world, Vicky. They're not running a family business or family businesses, which on the Trump side, as you said, is mostly marketing, is mostly selling themselves. On the Kushner side is building giant buildings that they can't afford or, you know, kicking people out of, you know, low income housing in Maryland. So take us through the kind of personality trait that has no accounting for the truth, right? Because it doesn't matter in your world. And now you're in a world where not only the lives of 330 million Americans, but the lives of 8 billion humans on any given day could be affected by decisions you either choose to make or not make. I think Jared and Ivanka are remarkably similar. People probably may not understand how ambitious Jared Kushner is. And again, it all stems, it's very biblical, it stems from what happened to his father. And, you know, until his father went to prison, you know, both Jared and his brother Josh, they both have photographs of JFK around their desks. And, you know, Charles Kushner's ambition for his children was absolutely that they were to be the Jewish Kennedys. And so more than ever, after his father had gone to jail, Jared was going to achieve what his father couldn't. And he was sort of going to right the wrongs as he perceived them done to that family. So there is that. The other thing that you touched on is the importance of PR. And here is where Jared and Ivanka are absolutely joined at the hip. I mean, she had a fashion branding business before she went into the White House. And she actually, in, in her first book, she actually says perception is reality. And these two thought, and by the way, it worked very well for them until they went to Washington, that you could finesse your way out of anything with the right messaging. And they didn't have, certainly in terms of politics, any substance. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure I'm anchored to remember to vote, if I remember correctly. No, they're sort of like the ultimate two-dimensional people. Right. And, you know, Jared, when Jared came to New York, when, which is when I first met him, when his father had gone to jail, he wasn't yet the vindictive person that he became. And I use that word deliberately because he became somebody who ordered up hit pieces on business rivals in the New York Observer that he owned business rivals who had absolutely, there were no interest to the public whatsoever. I mean, it was this purely petty fight, but you know, Jared had a three point plan when he, when Charles went to jail, that he was, the Kushners were going to buy a newspaper 
to give themselves a platform so that they would never have to suffer the indignities of what they'd suffered at the hands of the New Jersey press. They were going to buy a trophy building in New York because that would elevate them from sort of being known as a New Jersey real estate family. And the third point was that Jared was going to marry somebody prominent. And he achieves all three. And it's sort of then, I mean, I think you have to remember that it's all about rehabilitation. It's all about re-putting him on this path that his father was building for them before he goes to jail. And you have to remember his father was very politically active, always had, you know, Bibi Netanyahu used to come and stay, a mixture of Democrats and Republicans giving speeches to him. And at the time, what nobody quite realizes that he was borrowing money from his family to pay for all of this. So for Jared Kushner to be given the chance of going in to the White House, you know, he's got a whole host of personal agendas there that I'm not sure people really understood until possibly it was too late. I mean, the other thing to bear in mind is that he didn't know what he didn't know in the sense that, you know, his father basically bought him a place at Harvard and he then walked into a business that he inherited. And then he, when he goes to the White House, you can tell when you read even his own book, he clearly thinks that he's smart enough, that he may not know everything, but he's smart enough that he can be the most brilliant. He can fake it till he makes it. Right. And in fact, that ignorance combined with the ambition is really, really dangerous for America. So let's talk about your book. So those of us that have spent a lot of time thinking, unfortunately, about Donald Trump, Jared and Ivanka are not at all surprised by this. I don't think before talking to you, I don't think I really understood, again, the biblical and or classical dynamics of it, but none of it surprises me, right? It's always been some weird twist on Shakespeare, King Lear, whatever the case might be. But again, I don't think they ever thought they were going to win. That was a big surprise. And then they did. I mean, I was lucky enough 20 years ago to work at the White House, Vicky, and, you know, they get to the White House to look around for the first time. And they're like, so you guys all stay here? And the staff's like, no, man, you got to fill the offices yourself. And they didn't even understand that. I was always fascinated. And this is more about staff. I mean, Kushner was essentially the chief of staff for four years, right? I don't care if anybody else had the titles. They couldn't ever figure out their like typo problems, right? Like they always had typos in things. Um, they couldn't ever figure out like how to get things done realistically. They were always going outside the system because the system, A, they didn't understand it. B, it didn't work fast enough. Or C, it didn't let them do what they wanted to do. So they were always looking for external ways to do it, whether or not it was making deals on masks and everything during COVID. I mean, for Christ's sakes, Vicky, I mean, Kushner goes to the Russian embassy to make a phone call so that he's got a quote unquote back channel. That's like there was a time not that long ago that would be the definition of espionage on behalf of a foreign power like this crazy town. Well, so, you know, I think C, you know, they wanted to do what they wanted to do. And, you know, I don't know if you remember, but even before Ivanka went into the White House, they, she was on television, they did, gave an interview. And then the next day, her fashion brand put out a release saying you can buy the bangle she wore for, you know, and, you know, the whole way through, beginning with the transition, as you say, with that meeting with the Russian ambassador, you know, I report in the book, Gary Cohn said to Jared, what are you doing? 
you do realize that now you're in this position, everything you do is discoverable. You can't go off and just have meetings like that. But, you know, Jared either didn't know or didn't want to know. You know, we also discovered that during the transition, he went to a dinner with his father who'd got this real problem with this trophy building that he oh, overpaid six, six, six. for it. Yes. And there was a ticking clock on $1.4 billion loan that was going to come due. And they knew that no Americans would touch it. You know, other developers didn't think that the building was even worth the land. On what, you know, it was like it would be worth more if it was a pile of dirt. And they were really running out of options. And obviously with Jared in the White House, the optics of having a foreign buyer coming in is very bad. But nonetheless, <laughs> Jared in the transition goes and has a dinner with a Chinese company, Ambang, whose CEO subsequently went to jail with his father. And that was just the beginning of the examples that we know about of sort of rules and protocols that are there to protect the American people being broken. I mean, the next thing Jared was supposed to do was disclose, was divest, like everybody else who went into the White House. You have to divest for a reason so that you're not conflicted. But again, Jared, he omitted various items on his White House disclosure. And then, you know, he didn't divest properly. And it turned out as time went by that people like the then CEO of Goldman Sachs, Lord Blankfein, who were investors in a firm called Cadre that Jared still owned, he was still in with his brother, then came by into the White House. And even worse, journalists did notice this, began to report on it and say, hang on a minute, this isn't right. The next thing that happens is the White House logs get closed. So we now, the American people, the White House is supposed to be our house, now can't see who's going in and who's going out. You know, this is not how democracy is supposed to work. We haven't even got on to Jared Kushner's wheeling and dealing in the Middle East. Well, and that was where I wanted to go next, because in that Trump term, right, Saudi Arabia is the first country that Trump visits. You know, they do all the weird glowing orbs and swords and all that other stuff, which I'm sure they knew Trump would love. Right. Because the thing is, most of the time, I'm going to venture a guess here. I think that foreign intelligence services have to figure out, like, what a leader's like. What is an American president's weakness? What is it they like? What is it they hate? What are their personality traits? With Trump, it's all out there, right? Like, he really, he's the most, I, I've always said, he's the most transparent president we've ever had because not only has he been in the public eye for so long, however he's feeling, he tells you. Whatever he's upset about, he tells you. Or somebody who was in the room with him runs to the nearest reporter to tell them. And so, like, there's no secrets here. So now you go over and... Again, I think we have to put it in the context not of what's in the best interests of the United States, its foreign or domestic policy or its citizens, but what is best for the Trump Kushner enterprise, I guess we could call it. And so take us a little bit into Jared's first steps into the sand. So I think that the most important thing to understand about that trip to Saudi Arabia and what went down is that. Jared and Mohammed bin Salman, who was not then the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, he was the deputy crown prince of Saudi Arabia, had met and 
they're both, you know, young, ambitious guys who'd been, you know, had a silver spoon. And one, it's important to remember that MBS was very keen to displace his cousin, Mohammed bin Nayef, who was then the crown prince. It's important to remember that Mohammed bin Nayef is considered a hero by our intelligence services. This is a man who, after 9-11, worked very, very hard on counterterrorism, saved American lives by letting the CIA and other agencies know that there were bombs on planes and things that got dismantled. I mean, he was even at the beginning of the Trump administration given an award on behalf of the CIA by Mike Pompeo, which Mike Pompeo does not mention in his new book. But MBS <laughs> wanted to get rid of MBN. And so Jared Kushner was keenly aware of this. Before that Saudi trip, Jared Kushner's dad, Charles Kushner, met with the Qataris and asked the country of Qatar, state of Qatar, which has a long-standing rivalry with Saudi Arabia for a billion dollars to save the ticking time bomb of this loan coming due on 666 Fifth Avenue. The Qataris turned Charles Kushner down. Really important to understand that because it is in that framework that Trump goes off to Saudi Arabia. Now, Trump was persuaded to go. Initially, he hadn't thought the Saudi trip was such a good idea, but Jared and Tom Barrack, who's an old friend. Also under federal indictment. Well, he's been acquitted. <laughs> That's a whole other story. But yes, he was charged with spying for the United Arab Emirates, of course, Saudi Arabia's greatest ally, but he has been acquitted. But it's under that that they all head off to Saudi Arabia. So MBS wants help in getting rid of his cousin. And that does happen. Right. He locks them all in a hotel, right? Well, before then, Mohammed bin Nayef, around that time of that trip, before they actually land in Riyadh, MBN suddenly swears fealty to MBS. So that problem is dealt with. On that trip, Jared and Ivanka go off and have dinner with MBS. That trip was meant to be all about cooperation in the Gulf, between the Gulf states, and it was meant to be, okay, everyone, we're all going to come together. And this is what Trump's speech was all about. We're all going to come together to fight terrorism. So what happens next is really interesting. Ten days later or so, Rex Tillerson, who was then the Secretary of State, and James Mattis, then the Secretary of Defense, are down in Australia at a summit meeting with their various counterparts from the world. And they get told that the Saudis and the Emiratis have led a blockade of Qatar. There even might be troops on Qatar's border. And they are very, very alarmed. Why? Because the American airbase, our only security in that region, is in Qatar. And they're like, well, they had no idea about this. They're like, hey, well, we were just in Saudi Arabia. The theme was all about everybody's going to get along. And they knew that the Saudis and the Emiratis would never, ever have considered blockading Qatar, where the US airbase is, unless they'd had approval from the White House. And they also discovered that Trump didn't actually know that we had an airbase in Qatar. So the person who gave the green light, as far as Rex Tillerson believed, was Jared Kushner. So again, when you know what we in the world didn't know at the time was that the Kushner family was upset with the Qataris, but for a business reasons. Right. Just like his dad going to prison was a family dispute, not one for the feds. Right. But meanwhile, we are at the American airbase 
in the region, our security in the region is now at risk. And MBS, you know, does then go on to uh, lock up his relatives in Saudi Arabia and, and they're not released until their purse strings are basically controlled by him. And there have always been questions as to what Jared Kushner knew or didn't know. You know, we won't really learn much, I don't think, from reading his book on any of this. We, in fact, Jared Kushner amazingly really barely talks about the blockade of Qatar. And interestingly, Mike Pompeo barely talks and he was running the CIA at the time. It's really extraordinary how they've all got amnesia. And then fast forward, what happens and what's now the subject of a congressional investigation is that Jared Kushner's dad still has this problem of this ticking clock and this massive bill coming due on his building. And MBS comes to the White House comes to America in the spring of 2018. And he does this charm offensive, right? Well, except that the meeting inside the White House didn't go very well because ah. Trump turned around and asked him for $4 billion to help rebuild in Syria. Having sort of said, and we're now learning, well, you know, I've done a lot for you. In fact, it was only because remember with Jamal Khashoggi, that hasn't happened yet. And the MBS says, well, I've got this problem. I don't know, think I can afford that. I've got this war in Yemen. And Trump says, and then the meeting, I think, becomes very unpleasant. Trump says, well, did you fly here commercially? How did you get here? Did you take a taxi? You know, really, you've got no money. And it doesn't go very well. And the Qataris hear about this. And very quickly, the Emir of Qatar comes over. He's a very tall man. He makes sure he wears a suit into the White House. And Trump, as you know, is very impressed by how people look. Sure. And he likes tall people. He's like right. this tall tennis playing. Exactly. And the Emir of Qatar says to Trump, well, you know, I've got a lot of money to help you, but I've got this problem with this blockade. So in the next couple of weeks, two things happen, which is the U.S. withdraws its support of the blockade of Qatar and Jared Kushner's dad gets bailed out by a deal with a Canadian company whose second biggest shareholder is the Qatari Investment Authority, the Qatari State Investment Fund. And what Congress is now looking at, you know, emails have surfaced showing that Charles Kushner was absolutely in talks with the Qatari government while all these negotiations about this blockade were going on. And so, you know, Jared Kushner said, you know, he said there were no conflicts of interest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet Congress has asked Brookfield with the Canadian company to hand over all its documentation. They have not. It's asked Jared Kushner to hand over all his correspondence between all these countries in the Gulf. Because as we know, the day after he left office, the Saudis invested $2 billion into Jared's new fund, which was interesting because Jared doesn't have really any track record. So, you know, this is why not sort of playing by the rules can be very dangerous. Right. Well, because now you're, you know, these are not Tonka toys. This is like warships, airplanes, you know, everything else. But so let's fast forward. So we know the disaster that is Trump's COVID response, right, which is in his fourth year. But Let's even fast forward to the post-2020 elections where Jared and Ivanka sort of go dark. They know that Trump has lost, but they have their own equities at this point, right? Kushner's made his own relationships, built his own relationships, and he doesn't want to let the old man 
ruin those. Um, so talk to us a little bit about how Jared Kushner basically gets a $2 billion check from Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudis, after Trump has left office to run an investment fund, something I think, as I understand it, he's never done with a deal that no one ever gets. And in fact, I believe even the Saudi investment panel, whatever it is, said, we shouldn't do this. And the crown prince said, you know, wire the money. You have to remember, MBS was not the crown prince at the beginning of the Trump administration. And there was this obstacle in his way. His cousin, Mohammed bin Nayef, who people running the State Department and the intelligence agencies would have much preferred to see be the ruler of Saudi Arabia. He's a moderate and an ally to the United States. But the problem, and in fact, he realized a little too late that MBS had become very close to Jared Kushner and was probably going to try to use that alliance, that friendship to supersede him. He tried, he hired a lobbyist, Robert Strick, to get in front of Trump and the lobbyist was not able to get in front of Trump. And there are questions as to whether Jared Kushner was involved in that. And so it certainly was helpful for MBS's accession to power to have someone on his side. We now know from testimony that was given by Rex Tillerson in the trial of Tom Barrack that Kushner absolutely had talked to MBS about that blockade of Qatar and had given his support. It's been reported that Jared Kushner was at looped in when MBS rounded up his relatives in the Ritz-Carlton, which gave MBS the control of the money that he needed in Saudi Arabia. As we know, Jared Kushner basically glossed over the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. So when you stand back and you look at all of this, you know, MBS quite possibly would not be the crown prince of Saudi Arabia were it not for Jared Kushner. And so was the $2 billion a quid pro quo? Well, that is the question that Congress wants the answer to. I think we all want the answer to that. You know, I think the question is, are we going to get it? Well, not if Jared has anything to say about it, right? No, I know. But, you know, again, you ask, well, they appear to be sitting this one out. You know, I mean, they've made a lot of money, perhaps not so many friends in this country, you know, as a result of the last administration. I have, you know, you're sure they're sitting this out, but one has to wonder if they thought he was actually going to win, if they would stay on the sidelines. There's no way. There's no possible way. I doubt it, given everything we know about these two. Well, and there's also the one thing that we saw and we used to our advantage, even to this day, Vicky, is Trump himself has, you know, I mean, just like every good autocrat, right? Like he doesn't let any one person be in charge too long. And as soon as that person rises to a level of prominence, he thinks is too high or is outshining him, they have to go. You know, Kushner and Ivanka are family, unlike the rest of them. Obviously, Trump's got some weird fascination with his own daughter. And if they believed that Trump was going to win the nomination, which I think he will, and that there was an even money bet that he would be reelected, they'd be right back there because, well, I assume that MBS and the likes of him would expect <laughs> that right. they would be back there. The likes of Putin and all the other bad guys running around the country. Because here's the thing. It's like the ultimate easy transaction. It's just money. It's money and power. Like they don't care. Like there's no principle involved. Like you don't have to go figure out like 
to my point earlier, like they're two dimensional. Like this is not a complicated set of calculations about how you get the favor of a Donald Trump or a Jared Kushner. It's give me what I want to do what I want to do. And you're good. Well, right. And I think that's exactly right. I think most people historically, you know, want to go to the White House because they want to go to the White House. That's the goal for the Trumps and the Kushners. It's like, okay, now this sets us up for the next deal. That's the great difference. But the hangers on of Trump and the Kushners are really bad people because they do have an ideological agenda that they want to push forward because neither Trump nor Kushner, I believe, have any set ideology or any ideology at all. They're perfectly willing to let these people go off and do what they want to do because they don't care anyway. You know, I mean, I think what we've seen, you know, money talks. We still don't know right exactly how much money Trump is getting from Saudis with live golf. We don't actually have any visibility onto that. And also, I think that probably there is a difference. You know, the personalities are so different and the businesses ultimately are very different. You know, I think for Trump being president, you know, this is a branding exercise. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, he's, this is the ultimate reality TV show. So in that sense, you know, I think he cares more about the end in itself than Kushner. But, you know, no, it's a, it's a very troubling. It's very troubling. Right. And again, for most of the, you know, the United States, there were differences in politics, differences in policy, differences in party. But up until Trump, I would venture to say as a former Republican, you could go to bed every night and have a pretty good idea that Barack Obama was in it for the right reasons. Maybe I disagreed with his policy. Maybe I disagreed with this or that. But I didn't worry that like he was going to sell out the country. I didn't worry that Bill Clinton or Jimmy Carter were going to sell out the country that I would wake up one morning and like American democracy would be hanging by a thread because again, all of these things are not done in the context of politics. Politics is a means to an end, which it always has been. But in this case, it's a means to an end for specific individuals who don't care about the rest of it, don't care about the human cost, governance cost, America's place in the world. And in fact, Trump and his followers routinely denigrate the United States and its place in the world. They want to make us as bad as they are. They want to make us as bad as everybody else. So therefore, there's no moral equivalency. Well, we do it, right? I mean, that was always Trump with Khashoggi. Well, like, oh, like America doesn't kill people. Well, I'd like to believe, and maybe I'm the Pollyanna here, Vicky, that, you know, we don't chop up reporters and put them in bags and send them back to Saudi Arabia, right? And get away with it. No, we don't. Yes, no, we don't. Not that I'm aware. Yeah. Well, Vicky, I want to thank you for joining me today. And I think there are more conversations to come as we see Trump moving through the primary. But where can our listeners find you online? Oh, thank you so much. Vicky Ward investigates at substack.com. And stand by because I do have a very exciting Audible original coming in September about the Supreme Court. Wonderful. I'm a faithful Audible subscriber, so I will be there. Is there anywhere we could find you on Twitter? Yes, at Vicky PJ Ward. At Vicky PJ Ward. And as always, gang, you find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen, on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Vicky Ward, thanks for coming. And everybody else, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. 
To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.